Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today is a wonderful friend and an amazing human and her companion. So we have Mia Dan, CEO of Lighthouse, founder of Women in AI Ethics. And for those of you who are listening, sorry, you can't see it, but we have one of her kitty cats, Han Solo, joining us on the show today too. Hello, Mia. Welcome. Thank you so much, Theo. It's so great to be here. And Han is very excited to join us as well. He's my little research assistant. Uh, he's also responsible for all the typos in my emails. <laughs> and any any um, strange emails that you might have received, any strange texts. Um, now, I just want to give credit where it's due. But we are very thrilled to be here. That is cute. I have seen him on pictures before, but... This is, oh, this is adorable. I like that. Sorry. See, our conversation is going to be totally derailed in the last, in the next 30 minutes. I'll try to stay focused. But um, so first of all, you are super well known for your efforts in promoting diversity and responsible AI practices. I am very curious to know, how did that come about and what prompted you to start your own company because it's not an easy thing to do. Um, you have a lot going on, on on your plate. And often when I look at you, I'm like, how, how do you do that exactly? Same question I ask myself about you every time I see you. I'm like, I have no idea how to does it. And somehow I find that that is so typical of women that we do a lot. Um, so how I got started with my company Lighthouse 3 was I landed in Silicon Valley. My first job was at eBay. So I started working for them back in the day when there was this thing called social media doesn't did not yet exist in its current form. Uh, Amazon was not the big Goliath it is today. Facebook, believe it or not, was the new kid on the block. Uh, Netflix was sending out these CDs, movie CDs, and for our kids, I don't know how many kids even know what those are. Uh, such a different time that was at the beginning of uh, what we have now become so used to, so ubiquitous, the social media. So my professional career started with helping companies navigate these new um, this new evolving landscape, which was changing so quickly, and people were still trying to figure out how, what do we do in this space and how do we, um, what are these new modes of engagement of reaching our customers? So, so much was changing so quickly. So the responsible part of my uh, work was really helping companies adopt these technologies, but doing it in a way that's a company. It started with vetting the vendors, making sure we're working with the right technology vendors, making sure the technologies we are adopting or need our governance framework. And if there wasn't, and a lot of times there wasn't a governance framework. So de developing new governance frameworks, drafting policies, bringing together all these multi-functional um, yeah, stakeholders together, putting together user training programs, because for a lot of folks, social media was so, so new today. We are so used to it. But for them, digital technologies was like, you might as well as been talking Greek and Latin. Uh, that was what a tweet, the first tweets felt like to a lot of folks. So um, in addition to my corporate job, 
uh, I would spend my, um, I was also one of the few women uh, technology bloggers in those times. So what it allowed me to do is break out of my, you know, the corporate <laughs> bubble and get out into the space where there were all these new technologies being developed. There's so much excitement in the space. And again, being in Silicon Valley, there are a lot of new startups coming up. But it allowed me to stay on top of a lot of these developments in a very male-dominated space. Um, there's also a lot of solidarity, right? Because there are the women, so few women in this space. So that was that. But then in the evenings and weekends, I would run tech meetup groups. So these started as just gatherings of like te- of maybe like eight or 10 people, I would buy, get in pizza for everyone. And we would talk about what's going on in this space. And that grew, that grew to, we started getting in more speakers, like hundreds of, uh, we grew to hundreds in audience. It was such a great way. And it still currently is such a great way to bring people in. Uh, and people who are outside the tech bubble, give them a feel and get give them a close-up look at what is going on in this space, help them be better informed. Uh, we all, I also use this as a way to get more women involved. I would it, um, invite specifically women speakers because I really believe that when you see women represented in these spaces as speakers, then you feel more inclined to, okay, this space, I belong in this space. And again, like I said, there's so few of us, I had to make sure that was the way that women felt included because there were times when we, when I started, I was the only woman in the room. Uh, as, and as you know, that can be very isolating. And then <laughs> slowly we started having more women come in. And that was pretty much, I'll talk about how women in ethics came about. But you get an inkling as to how that started. Uh, but I left the corporate world and still, this is still while I was working in the corporate world. I left because as a single parent, it is a struggle to maintain and that elusive work-life balance. There is no balance. And unless you have, like I did, I didn't have an army of nannies and staff to help me raise my child. So I like millions of women, and I know you can relate because this is this is a real challenge for a lot of us. We traded in our like productive paid work. We traded that in for unpaid reproductive work of taking care of our families. And this is so important, raising children, like taking care of your family is so important, but it's so undervalued in our society. So as I exited the corporate world, I started up uh, Lighthouse 3. I was continuing doing the same work. Nothing changed. I still had the experience, the expertise, helping companies adopt new technologies. And fast forward to today, we completed 10 years this year. Uh, and, and I find that so much has changed in the space. And yet nothing has changed because the biggest challenge we face even with every digital or every technological revolution, whether it is starting with digital, social media, crypto, and now we are generative AI, the challenge is the same. How do we separate hype from reality? And I honestly spent a majority of my time doing that. It's like there's so much hype in the space right now is just helping people navigate the hype and helping them see what the real issues are and what the real value is. And just separating that itself is a huge job. And I think a lot of us are struggling with that. A lot of companies especially are struggling with that. (music) 
I cannot agree more. I kept nodding my head because there are so many points that resonate. I remember the first time ever that I presented to a bunch of people in banking. There were 30 people sitting in front of me, around me, all men in suits. There was not one single woman in sight. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, this is the first time I'm in a new industry trying to, you know, present the output of the first report that my team did. And there's no woman in here. Like what, what, what was going on? And, and I thought that tech was bad because my background came from tech and telecom. I was not prepared to see worse in, uh, in financial services. So that, that, that was striking. Um, and you're absolutely right. You know, we move from technology hype from one to the other to the other. And the basic fundamental challenges are still the same when it comes to who has access to the technology, who has a voice at the table to talk about and change and influence the trajectory of those technology development. We still have the same challenge. Um, and, and we have ways to go if, <laughs> especially since I feel like we have taken a step back in many places as well. So let, let's talk about one of the things that has been quite hot on the headlines lately, responsible AI. What exactly is responsible AI when it comes to practice? And the reason why I say practice is because we see a lot of companies with white paper that talk about, hey, responsible AI, this is what we need to do. This is, you know, it's about transparency. It's about doing, using technology in a responsible manner. It's about ethics. It's about traceability. It's about explainability and all of that. But I would challenge, what are some of the companies that are doing it right? Because I would say a lot of them write a nice white paper, but that's pretty much it. <laughs> No, say, saying it like it is. That's what I always appreciate about you. You read a white paper does not mean a whole lot unless you are actually doing something with it. It looks nice, sure. I have so many of them. I feel like I have a whole collection of them every time I go to an event. And just yesterday, I got one from another tech vendor. So I'm going through it and saying, what's new? Uh but a paper is only, or a framework is only as good as your application of it. And herein lies the challenge that end of the day, these companies are for-profit companies. And even when you are not-for-profit, you're still operating as a business where you are, your primary goal is your production of something with the services and products. And then if that's a technology product, uh, you're still trying to maximize your profit. So everything is within the constraint. So this is even when we say responsive AI, it is still for folks like us who worked in regulated industries. The regulatory frameworks already exist in those industries, like risk legal compliance. They literally have to stamp everything that goes out. But for technology vendors, that reality that has never been their reality. You could push as a technology vendor 
anything out there and you could have like airtight these contracts where what you do with my technology software or hardware it's your business if you're using that to run some you know god knows racketeering or like you know money laundering that is not my like you know you know nobody like google or amazon whatever like whatever platform this is built on they I'm not responsible for that. That is you. That's on you. But what shifted with AI, because so many of these biases and the harms are embedded within the systems, vendors can no longer just shift their responsibility to others and say, hey, this is not my responsibility. You own it. And Because now there's pushback is, no, no, you build this. And if this causes harms, this is on you as well, which is why we are seeing. And so, which is important to understand the context for why this is a thing now, because for the longest time, there was no distribution of accountability here, unless the product didn't work or it blew up, then you could hold them responsible, right? Like if you have like um, Tesla exploding, (laughs) I mean, it does keep happening, but you could hold them, but these are much more insidious. And these are, this is thanks to the work of a lot of women in this industry, like uh, Dr. Temnit Garu and uh, Meredith Whitaker, and they're like a Biba Birhane, were telling us that these harms are embedded, these biases, false embedded in the system. So we know more. And that has actually led to this development of a lot of these responsible AI practices. So now we talk about what's real, what's not. Because a lot of times, outward appearances can be so deceptive. Um, Because I look at Twitter as such a great example, like Twitter is uh, do you remember the time when Twitter actually had a responsible AI team? They hired some real like superstars in the responsible AI space. Every day there's a new news story out, coming out of Twitter. Look at this great thing we are doing. Here's a bug bounty. Here's the research. And every day it's like a constant this spin cycle. Look at this amazing thing. And everybody in the industry, not everybody, a lot of people in the industry were pointing at them like, this is how it's done. You are the role model. Tech companies should be following your role, your model to move forward and fast forward, right? What happened? Like around then we find out that now we know that at the time that they were rolling out this responsible AI principles or what have you in the background, like Jack Dorsey was already planning his exit. He was already starting to build a different platform. He was planning to sell out. And he was already down that pathway. So you have to think about like how much of the stories we have fed about this is these companies doing well is actually how much of this is actually real versus is self-reported. So, so the bottom line is it's too soon to tell who is doing it well. Outwardly, it feels like companies are making the right moves. They are at least the mindset is shifting that we need to do something. But then again, if you've been in business long enough, you already should already have those practices in place. Um, I'll give an example, right? Responsible AI is about preventing discrimination and anti-discrimination laws have already been in place for a long time. So how is this any different? So the bottom line is companies who are doing well previously, I believe are going to continue to do well. The ones who have tackled discrimination, who have tackled a lot of biases in the hiring systems and who have actually made an effort I have a feeling we will continue to see them doing well. The others who are just like, okay, let's just do put out a PR uh, press release and look at this fancy new white paper. 
are typically not going to be the ones that we'll be hearing about. Uh, like as in they've done something positive. I have a feeling they'll be making headlines not for the right reasons. And it can be a struggle, isn't it? Because you hit it right on the on the head. It's it's they they have a profit driven motive at the end of the day. And I I often use one of the tech companies of late as an example on stage. I've done it twice now, whose name I shall not name, but they wrote out this powerful technology to the masses with a small fine print that says, hey, this is beta, it's not ready. And then knowing the harm that it could cause, not only did they not slow down on the rollout, they actually wrote it out to the smartphone. So now we can even have billions, millions more people have access to this technology, which they still claim it is not ready. And let's go to the hill and let's say we need to regulate it. When you send something out, just saying it's not ready, it's not good enough. Um, we need to do more. Um, I, I love innovation. I love tech. I love what tech can do. And I truly do believe that there are good sides to what we can do with technology. But testing, experimenting versus giving it to the masses are very, very different things. Understanding it is profit-driven. Um, because I think they're looking at a lot of dollar signs at the end of the day. Like I do question um, accountability and responsibility. So, I, um, yes. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yes, 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 to everything you said. <laughs> because, you know, it, it's one thing when, you know, you, you found an instance and it becomes, oh, this is funny, this is silly, we know it's not real, it's duh. But then is another when the tech can be used to create actual harm for people. Um, and that's where we need to draw the line somehow. So, um, which is a perfect segue to my next question. When it comes to responsibility and accountability, how then can we incentivize people to do the right thing? Because they are, in the end of the day, looking at, hey, we don't want to be the last to market. We want to use this and see what we can do with it. because. 10 other people are already doing it. And every day the execs are asking, well, what is your AI strategy? And so everyone is running towards the same thing. But how can we get them to actually be a little bit more thoughtful when they do that? I have to, such great questions. And I love questions that make me think. And also um, there are so many of these issues have been top of mind. For me as well, and for a lot of folks who are struggling with this onslaught of just technologies after technologies and trying to figure this out. And again, we've been here <laughs> before. Uh, there's always the sense of deja vu <laughs> to me, go through this like every five, 10 years, you see the same cycle repeat itself. So, so first thing, just grounding this in the reality of how the tech industry works. This is a very common model that tech industry has been using since the beginning of time. You remember how Gmail was launched, for example. There's always, always that alpha and then there's the, the beta version that everybody gets, like, the trickle, like, they gate the access, like, slowly people start getting access. It, it's partial, it's two, two things. One is it protects the company 
from going out, like from a liability issues if the things don't work and such. And then when you get something, people get more excited. People want to be part of that. So it was like a marketing, like genius meets like product liability uh, <laughs> model. But I feel like that has become more and more blatant in this AI race that now they don't even care anymore because they're, pre they're presenting AI as this magical thing that nobody understands. And politicians are still like trying to figure this out. It's same politicians who have no problems using these like technologies, unproven technologies to draft bills. And I'm just thinking to myself, we were not supposed to do that. You're trying, you're supposed to regulate it, not be the endorser of these technologies. Like, what is going on here? Uh, and I, I'm hearing from others as well, like how their state governments are also doing the same. When you use these technologies without any caveats, so, and the people who are supposed to be regulating it, then it sends the message that it is okay for everybody to do. So that I feel it's just like irresponsible, uh, which brings us to the role of one is, this is how the tech industry behaves. We get it. We've seen that. We've been here long enough to know this. Um, but then what is the government's role in in a free market economy? Uh, is it's that is that we haven't been able to address this basic issue of comes down to the risk from these products, right? The products, technological products, technology products pose risks. It doesn't matter what type of product. Some have more risk, some have less risk. We know AI technologies are very powerful, and the risks are even in orders of magnitude are much, much greater. So so when is just solving the problem of sh can, should they be launching these products without any guardrails? So number one, is that enough? And the role of government is not to understand every, being an expert in technology, which they're trying to do so desperately. They have advisors and have tech advisors and advisors to the advisors. And like I feel like every, every politician has their own team of AI advisors. And yet we have made no progress because end of the day, this is not about, about a technology. It literally, what is our relationship to these new technological developments and who gets a say in this? So therein lies the challenge. So those are two powerful players who cannot, who have a say. Okay. So let's talk about people who are impacted, who often get completely railroaded in this. The users, the unsuspecting users, this is being unleashed. So First, it's like the FOMO sets in because everybody's, the influencers, right? They're, they're talking about it. They're shilling it. Everybody's like, I need to be part of this. Whatever's going on, I need to be part of it. We know what happened with crypto. How did that go? People lost their savings. The people who were shilling it went on to the next scam. And the interesting thing, a lot of people in crypto are also people who are funding AI. So that makes me very concerned right there. Is there like legitimacy to AI as a field? Of course there is. Are there, is there potential for great benefit? Of course there is. There's huge potential there. But the problem is when you have the same people who are just the hipster, hipsters chilling this and unleashing it on the unsuspecting public, what are those guards? Like who's going to protect them? And the, is, is, is there the carrot and stick question you ask, like what incentives should we offer? The question is, should it be incentives? to act more responsibly or should it be regulation like the stick 
the stop acting so irresponsibly is the question, if it is that balance. Uh, so what we have decided to do is we, from a company, um, both Lighthouse 3 and even Women in Air Ethics perspective, are, we have taken the stance that we are going to focus on the users, which is more literacy, more education, helping them become smarter about, okay, this is a technology product that is not magic. It's not um, it's a magical thing. This is how it works. Uh, because when tech companies come out and say, we have no idea why this model suddenly started doing XYZ. Like we have to call BS on that because you know exactly how that model was built. Like let's, let's not, you know, we know what you're doing here. Uh, so I feel like what's missing in this whole equation is people are smart, give them the resources to understand these technologies, give them the agency, empower them and trust they will make the right decisions. And the incentive for them is once they understand how this technology can be used against them, but how they can also wield, they have the power to use these technologies to make their lives better, how to keep themselves safe. I feel those are the incentive structures that we should be building. And right now those are missing because if you're a technology vendor and you want more people to use your products, you're not going to tell them, right? It might harm you. And therein, I feel like there's a government responsibility, but I feel like that is a space that we are planning to work more in and helping bridge that divide. I love that approach so much because um, I remember when, when I first moved to the U.S., one of the things that was so surprising to me when it comes to the topic of futuristic technology was that in Asia, I grew up with cartoons when I was little. And, you know, of course, we were heavily influenced by, um, for example, the Japanese uh, culture and all of that. But in it, oftentimes when we talked about robotics, when we talk about future technology, it was always about, it was how can we use it to help people? It was always about this friendly robot, right? That will be there to help everyday people with their chores or help kids with, you know, their dreams. It was always a very positive light. And when I moved to the US, this was back in early 90s, Everything I came across when you talk about future and robotics was about how it would destroy Earth and how there will be this one thing that will be able to save everyone. But it always starts with a very negative connotation was there will be this immense technology that will take over humankind, that will take over the world, and the U.S. is going to save everyone. The narrative was very different in the sense I feel like I'm seeing it again is there is such hype of a future and people look at it as like, okay, this is fiction again. And no one is paying attention and no one is willing to, to look beyond and actually have the proper conversation. How does that affect everyday people? That part is missing. Um, there's a lot of hype, like you say, and it's really hard to drill past that hype. And to your point, to give people the actual real information so they can process it and understand what is real, what's not, and what they can do with it. 
um, that whole part is missing. Hundred percent. Yep. It's a huge gap, and it's a critical gap. The gap between the haves and the have-nots. Now we have the gap between the have AI resources and versus have have-nots who don't even have access to basic information as to how these technologies are even built. So how? Do they protect themselves? And it is easier to say, oh, look at the big bad thing that's going to happen to destroy everybody than say, hey, you know what? You can, this is, these are some ways that you can protect yourself right now. Do you know you can turn off this stalking, this tracking device? Uh, or use this privacy-enabled browser that will make sure that your privacy is protected. They're not having those conversations because it does not serve the agenda of just selling more products and selling more of the technologies because end of the day, these are human beings who are trying to just sell their products. Yeah, they are just dots that they can get data from. <laughs> and we, we are literally, yes, that's exactly it. They're sucking up. It's like the, the, the irony is they're taking our data, creating these products off the data and selling it back to us. Mm-hmm. And, we and we'll pay them for it. <laughs> <laughs> You know this reminds me of business oh my God. model. Heading zoos. Right. Yeah. Heading zoos. You know how many are like to keep the pet and you go and you take your kids. You literally are paying them. Yes. Pet, you know, paying them to feed their own animals. Mm-hmm. So that, okay, like, it's just a hilarious. Of course, that's like a horrible analogy because at least we get some pleasure out of our kids, get some pleasure out of it. But I, I can never understand this whole concept of like, you want me to pay? You like to take care of your animal, yeah. Your animal. Well, it's the same with uh farms that you can go pick fruits, right? I I remember this because when the kids were little, they love going strawberry picking and blueberry picking and raspberry picking. And then a friend of mine told me they're like, you know, this you are essentially their labor, right? You are picking the fruits for them Mm -hmm. at the same time, paying them for your labor. Like, yep. think about that equation. It's, it's interesting, interesting, right? <laughs> it is uh, bagging, self-service. Yeah. In, uh, yeah. You literally are bagging your own groceries and they're charging you for that privilege, right? Like you're literally doing that labor and also paying for that, like, produce. So, yeah. So, uh, it's it's incredible how these uh, models are built and how these business models are built in a way that they keep shifting more and more of the costs to the users mm-hmm. while taking more and more of our, like what makes us unique and our talent. And that's literally what's happening with AI models. They're taking our data, our talent, our originality, and just regurgitating it and saying, hey, that's innovation and here's your bill. Yay, and we get the joy of using it. Um, so <laughs> let's let let's let's go to something else that we started the conversation with. Um, so after Lighthouse, you also started Women in AI Ethics. It's I, watching you from the side and admiring what you've been able to do, bring all these voices together, highlights not just their work, also highlight their books and you know, pushing people and getting people to understand more about like, hey, there are all these other unsung heroes in the background doing all of these things. 
and oftentimes not getting the credit for it. It's been a while. It's been five years. But if you were to do it all over again, I'm curious to know, would you have changed anything um, that, you know, you started off with? Or would, are there some learnings that you think hindsight, oh, yeah, this is important to know. I wish I knew that. Uh, yes, actually, I did have a conversation recently that made me rethink the way we have, I have approached uh, this organization. So just for folks who are not very familiar with our work, how it all started was with the publication of the first 100 brilliant women in air ethics list back in 2018. And there are so many layers and layers of issues within the tech industry, starting with just lack of representation of women, but then that's exacerbated by the fact that even the women who are in this space don't get the credit for their work. And when they don't, even not only do they not get credit for their work, and completely people are like, we don't know anyone. And that's also morphed into oh, we'll just take their work and appropriate. I'm seeing all these different variety of different uh, ways that women's work is just erased, women's voices are erased. So that was the reason why I started it. And since then, it really took off because so many women could see themselves represented here. Uh, and so it opens up a lot of eyes and ears to, oh, it's not... The women aren't there. They're not. There is an issue by itself. The fact that their work isn't getting visibility is a big, huge, is like a bigger issue in uh, in some ways, very simply because work they are doing is literally saving humanity from the harms of AI. They're not just in it for themselves. They're bringing the lived experiences as a black woman, as, you know, from the LGBTQ plus communities, from indigenous communities. They're coming in and saying, this is how it's been impacting us on the margins, uh, like our communities, which have been sidelined. And we are doing the work of uplifting uh, all of all of us, not just uh, the very hetero white male like dominated space has been doing for so long so what happened if you started this conversation we said women do so much I look at you and like I'm amazed how you managed to get so much done and you're looking at me and it's so typical of this space so what someone told me recently is that Mia that the fact that you've been able to do so much, like you said, we've done the list, we've done events, we have an entire directory devoted to women in air ethics and online experts. So you can no longer say, I don't know qualified women. I can introduce you to like a thousand around the world and within probably your own city. We can do this. So all of those resources, hosting events and creating um, these absolutely free resources takes time, energy and money. And what she said to me um, is that when you've already done so much work with so little, because everything I started, I started it by self-funding it, self-funded the directory and so on. And along the way, we got like individual donors. We are still funded by individual donors. Um, then we got um, around last year, we got small infusions from Ford Foundation and from a media network because we are not tech funded. We are not one of those people who are like, okay, we'll just take tech funding and be like the PR arm for if we collaborate with them but we don't take money to forward their interests. So we have a very neutral objective that way. And we'd like to keep it that way. Um, so she said, if you can do all of this, it's so little money or no money, 
how are you going to make the case for getting more money? Because it's a huge jump to go from here to how much you sh really should be funded at. Um, this is work that gets millions. Say if this was headed by a white man, they would be out there getting millions in funding for the same level of work. But since you've done it with nothing, how would you even explain that jump? And that made me realize that if, again, this is to every woman who is listening and actually anyone who's starting a new venture is be very realistic about like, your uh, how much it takes to run this thing that you're starting off. Like we go in with the best of intentions, but always uh, if I had to do it all over again, I would look at fundraising first, having a very clear idea what it's going to take, at least at the set, like you don't have all the answers. I didn't know five years later, we would be a force to be reckoned with in this space. But at the same time, having your fundraising goals up front and being more diligent and being more um, prioritizing fundraising then doesn't get you like five years down the line where funders are going, you've done fine so far. You're doing amazing work with none, no funding. What changed? Right? Because you can only sustain it until for so long. You can only go. We are volunteer led myself also. We are all volunteers. We run this organization. But again, end of the day, we all have bills to pay. We all need to be cognizant of that, like the bills don't pay themselves, even though you want to do save the world. So basically, put on your own oxygen mask first <laughs> before you go to save the world. That would be my biggest advice. And then do less. There are a lot of problems in the world that need to be solved. Um, typically, um, also realize that funders like to have simple problems and one problem to solve. Which is also a reason why a lot of, and when I say funders, I mean philanthropic organizations and for good people who fund social projects or, um, you know, for AI yeah, for good projects, typically just want one, like a point solution, like one thing that your initiative is going to solve, even though a lot of the problems we are trying to solve are so complex and multi-layered, uh, but from a funding perspective, and your capacity building perspective, uh, do less. Uh, I'm very proud. I'm very proud that our organization was able to do like so much. Our volunteers are amazing. Our board is fantastic. Uh, could, like big shout out to the women in our community who step up every time to help each other. Uh, but to keep it sustainable and make sure everybody's time is being valued, talent is being valued, um, making sure that you get those core things in place first and then you can it helps your sustainability in the long run you know your own oxygen mask first you're the second person saying the same thing about doing less and taking up yourself first i think that is a thing that we tend to do often isn't it that we just jump in because we say there's so much that needs to be done. And we ended up trying to do a lot successfully. But I do, I do see, at least personally, the impact and the toll that it takes. Um, and it's not an easy thing. Um, the world is a little bit hectic at the moment. I feel like I'm doing a lot of chats with friends and colleagues about challenges and boundaries and about 
how much are we doing? How much should we be doing? And priorities, um, which brings me to a whole different question. It feels philosophical um, <laughs> at, at point, but it also feels like more and more people are getting stressed. We're working longer hours. There is a um, dynamic going on on companies wanting people to go back to work in person versus we want more flexibility in terms of where we work and when we work. Um, and now we're seeing a lot of problems, if you will, um, of personal challenges and professional challenges. It, I, I feel like the pendulum is still swinging and we haven't yet settled. And the scary thing is, what would that do to kids, right? As in, and the challenge is multiple. One is, if everyone is working remote, then the ones who just graduated, who have no network, and oftentimes sharing a flat with their roommates, they don't have the same opportunity as we did when we first started out, you know, grabbing a coffee with your colleagues and going lunch, building the camaraderie and the network outside of the office. So that could be challenging in itself, or the impact of being online all the time and under the impact of constant algorithms and tracking and all of that, what that does to our mental health, that's also another challenge in it by itself. I don't have an easy answer, but I'm looking to you, my dear friend. Do you have any practical advice for us? Because I, I don't even know where to go. That's such a great question. I, so my teenager, actually my adult <laughs> child I know it's so hard I always think of my kid as like this teenager but they're all grown up and they've been working since um so I'll give you their perspective because that is the audience you're talking about and I'll talk about like how that impacts adults as well uh I just start with we need to give people the flexibility to live the lives they want to live it's this constant pressure for from companies to squeeze the most out of their employees. It's it's not healthy. It's not healthy for the like the retention. It's not healthy for economy. It's not healthy for society. I mean, it's just like it's very short sighted. It's the bottom line, and you know it, and I know it. And we have to keep pushing those boundaries. So the way I see my kid managing is I feel like the next generation is doing a much better job managing those because one is they see what their parents have gone through, especially their mothers, right? Your kids are going to look to you. My kid looks to me and looks at like what compromises we've had to make. And they're very cognizant of what they don't want in their lives. They have very clear, my kid is very clear about boundaries, what time you start, what time you end. So I don't want the mental load of taking on all of the other work. Volunteer work is very much like, yes, I can help you, but within this. And I'm blown away by that. The fact that those are lessons for everyone, right? Like, how do you manage your own time? What do you decide whether or not, like, it's acceptable, whether it's in the workplace, with your colleagues, with your family, your loved ones? It's like just setting, having clear expectations. So when you go into a workplace, just understanding that, are you okay? Some people are like, yeah, sure, tracking is okay. But even having transparency, I mean, transparency is the first step. Even walking in and saying, can I understand like what the policies are about this time tracking or tracking my movements or what have you. Once you get that, 
then you can make decisions of this is this works for me, this doesn't work for me, and I I am just leaving. I quit. I will find something else that's a better use of my time, energy, and talents. And I'm seeing my kid do that. I'm seeing a lot of younger people do that. And I feel like sometimes the, when you have the privilege, you're able to do that. Uh, and we have to now think about how do we create the same level of privilege for people who don't have privilege. How do we give them the same options? Like say our kids can walk away and say, okay, I don't really need to pay my bills today. And that's not a pressure for me. So I can walk away from this job because this is a very abusive environment. But honestly, there are a lot of adults and young people who don't have those options. So we have to build a safety net for them, ways to, you know, voice their concerns, support them when they go back to the management and say, okay, this is not acceptable and help them push back as well. Because a lot of our, I feel, efforts today are like more for those who already have privilege and nothing for those who have none. Uh, even during the pandemic, right? People who are able to work remotely. I mean, frontline workers, essential workers, essential are really the essential workers did not have those options. And we completely like went like, yeah, remote is great, but we should not forget those who don't have the same same privileges or options. But I guess like there are no easy answers. We will have to continue to keep pushing for transparency, pushing for change as and when we see it and also support like organizations who are pushing back um, on this. and. Uh, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of power and solidarity, and we are slowly, just, just slowly realizing that. I love that word, power and solidarity. We can vote with our voices. We can vote with our wallets. Oh, I like that. Um, yeah. We can support the businesses that support their workers in the right way. I'm noticing more and more businesses where some of the workers are going on strike or voicing their opinion on social media on how they're being treated and how that's not right. So as consumers, we have the power to go support those workers um, so that their employers, however big they are, understand that those workers are not alone. Um, I think that's something at the very least that we can all do and we need to do more. 100%. Before, yeah. before we uh, close today, I do want to ask you something because this is something my kids asked me the other day and I'm like, oh, wait, this is something I want to ask Mia too. Um, they want to put a time capsule together <laughs> and then they want me to safeguard it that this is what they say to say you know mommy because you're the only one who will remember where everything is <laughs> <laughs> so sweet. It, it, it i recently came back from a business trip and within the first five minutes i located two pairs of swimming goggles that can they could not find for three days and i located a pair of shoes that my son was only able to find one and miss the other um, yeah, I am the super mom. Right? It's the it's the lost and found department, I call it. <laughs> so if you were going to put a time capsule together today, um is 2023, that's the year. What are the five things that you would like to put in there so that perhaps your grandkids will open it and say, Oh, we 
this is what Grandma Mia was talking about. Oh, oh my gosh. That's such a great question. I would def- I love books, by the way, and I, don't, I do want to give a big shout out to public libraries and independent bookstores. Oh, my God. I feel like there's something so magical about books, the way they transform you and they transport you to a completely different place and space. Um, can't say enough good things about um, books and, you know, there's all these spaces that close them where you can go and um enjoy them uh, so I would definitely say a book uh, and I would uh, Never Rare is my favorite book by Neil Gaiman and I just love his work and that book somehow is just always so comforting to me and yet in a way it's very empowering I find um, so I would put a book in there and then a picture of my <laughs> myself, my kitties and my kid in there, pictures. Oh my gosh, like five things. I'm such a simple person. I still have a few things <laughs> that I really love and enjoy. Um, I would put a little bit of sand in there because I feel like I heard that a lot of the sand is being eroded. There might be a time like uh, Florida coast is losing sand. Uh, and is eroding away. And I just never thought that we would live in a world like sand might become a scarce resource. So there would, I would put sand and I love the beach. And I would put a capsule uh, of a vial of water, rainwater. But I have a feeling that the way things are going, uh, given a bulk of the human humanity does not have enough access to clean uh, drinking water, I feel like that is going to be something that's, Sadly, might be something they've never, I hope not. <laughs> it might be a precious commodity like diamonds are today and that's like artificially created, but this might be maybe the next man-made disaster. And did I do four? Um, yes, you did four. Yeah. Oh, one more. <laughs> Picture sand and a vial of clean water, rainwater. Maybe a um, coffee beans. Oh, la, la. Love Ooh, coffee. Another one. Yes. Oh, my God. This is my dear <laughs> friends. Uh, yes. A coffee bean. Even that is, uh, oh, the environmental disaster, human caused disasters are just like the list is endless. Yeah. Because that's another one that's under like a severe like risk mm-hmm. of like having like maybe in the next few generations. We may that not. they might be out of coffee. Yeah, I read that. And I thought about you. I'm like, oh, my God, no. Without coffee. Yes, coffee. Something that is so simple that we take joy in that we take for granted as well. Um, I, I remember a couple of years ago in Cybos when I presented the future of money, I said the future of money is not about paper money or digital money. The future of money is clean air and drinkable water. And, you know, if if you look at where the world is heading right now, it doesn't matter what form or shape that future of money is if we can't breathe and if we don't have water to drink, right? Those are basic for survival for not just humankind, but also the ecosystem around us. We've all been impacted by wildfire one way or another, especially the last few years, right? Either the homes um, get burned down. We know people who lose their property or 
the air gets so polluted that we will end up staying inside. And to your point earlier, essential workers, they don't have the option of staying inside. People that are doing construction, they don't have the option of staying inside. People that are doing delivery, people that have to go to hospitals to go rescue lives, they don't have the option of just hiding at home. What are we doing for them? And I hope we are thinking more about that. And I hope that at least we have some kind of, it starts with even thinking, considering them in all of your projections, your planning, and then taking the stuff to actually help them. You're right. They're so, they're forgotten, they're invisible to us. And it's up to us to make them visible, for sure. Uh, but I do have a question for you. Uh-oh. What is in your time capsule to you? Do tell. So I love your idea. I'm going to borrow yours. I love your idea of, of the picture. So the picture, we'll have my family. Um, so my husband, the kids, my parents, and the bunny, of course. Um, he has occupied an outsized portion of our lives and time. He's our COVID bunny. Um, so we love him to pieces. Uh, so that would be the first thing. Oh, I was not ready for trick questions. Um, I would have, I would have um, chocolate beans, and and coffee beans all mixed together. Can we do that? Because um, I love both, and they're both um, are going to be at risk because of climate changes. I would have books, mm, maybe the ones that that I wrote, and hope right. <laughs> Can that count as one? <laughs> one. Um, but I'll have I'll have um, artwork, a drawing for my daughter. She loves to to draw, and um, I'll have something that my son wants to create. Because you know, kids kids are part of our lives. We made the choice to bring them to the world, and in return, they also influence a lot of things that we do and how we think about things. I often say like you know, looking at the current, for example, world that we live in today in the U.S. And chances are it won't impact us, our generation as much, but it will have a lasting impact on the kids. Um, the fact that my daughter is or will have less rights than I did growing up, that troubled me a big deal. Um the fact that we seem to be marching down a path where it is okay to discriminate people based on where they come from is dumbfounding to me because had we not learned anything from the previous wars, clearly we had not. Um, so, you know, I, I think as parents, we need to do what we can to create a different future for them because I worried about the future that we are creating right now. And as normal human beings, we have a duty to care as well. I couldn't agree more. So well said. And I feel like we owe it to them to do better and take care of them. But at the same time, I look at them and they fill me with so much hope. I see these kids that they're smart, they're bright, and they have so much empathy. Uh, I'll I'll just leave the, you with this one anecdote that my kid and I, I take the subway everywhere in New York. And regardless of what people say, it is the most convenient thing. Like, I think that 
in the United States, like in terms of innovation, I feel like that should be definitely on the top 10 innovations in the United States because it's so convenient. Reduces traffic if you think about levers. I mean, I could go on and on. I love public transportation. They're right up there with public libraries for me. And we were on the train and there was this homeless person and uh, on the train and the panhandling and my child just pulls out money from their pocket and gives it to them. I'm like, how do you have change? I never have change. They always keep money in my pocket to give them. And here's my child, works a minimum wage job and has been working for a long time since they were like young teenager, always had their own money, once through all these babysitting and working and like always, always tried to be financially independent. That's a big thing for my kid. I'm like, you actually plan to keep money to give away and like yes and I was just blown away I said this generation is going to be okay like they care about their fellow human beings did not turn away did not shield their eyes did not poo-poo or dehumanize just thought I see a person in need and I'm going to help and I feel that is going to save us that attitude Empathy for fellow human being, no matter what state they are in, no matter whether they look like us or not, and feel that is fundamentally that is missing. And this is what our kids are teaching us and showing us. I love that story, Mia. I need to remember to do the same thing because I recently I was in um, a tube and I had no cash. All I had was I had um, American dollars, which didn't work and wouldn't work in London, and um, and I had. Hong Kong dollars, but I don't carry money as much as I used to anymore. Um, so that is a wonderful thing to remember. So thank you so much for sharing. I love that. I love that. Um, so for those of you who are listening, if there's one takeaway is um, be human. That will be what I'll leave you all with. So thank you so much for joining us today, Mia. It's wonderful and it's a pleasure. And it just made my day. So, and for the rest of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you all next week.